today's Bible reading is taken from Song of Songs chapter 6, verse 1, to Song of Songs chapter 8, verse 14. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set set me among the chariots of my kinsman, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the, the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over her over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early into the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and besides our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up upon you, O my beloved. O that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spice wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you 
not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, and there your mother was in labour with you. There she bore you. There she who bore you was in labour. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for your love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as a grave. It flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hammon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, Acts 3 of Song of Songs. Uh, as usual, just a quick warning, mainly for the people that are online listening afterwards. I'll be covering some MA15 sort of material in the sermon, so just be aware of who's listening around you. We're nearly through our Song of Songs series. So next week will be our last sermon and we'll be thinking big picture about Song of Songs, uh, spending a whole sermon thinking about how this kind of connects forward to Jesus and the new covenant and all those sorts of things. But this week we're going to cover the last chapters of the book uh, to see what happens with our lovers and then what God says to us through that. All right, so let me pray. Father, thank you for um, your word in Song of Songs. Thank you for helping us to understand it. Uh, we thank you for the warnings that it gives us and the truth that it speaks about love and sexuality. Um, help us to be wise in how we handle these things and help us to grow uh, and increase in our own love. Amen. Okay, so if you remember last week, uh, we left our lovers. When we left our lovers, they were separated. Our lover couldn't be with her beloved. And in their separation... Uh, she awoken, she awoke love with another man, so with King Solomon. And then he tasted her finest fruits and encouraged everyone else listening to do the same, to revel in sexual desire. But after that, uh, the lover dreamt of her beloved and her awakened love for him hadn't faded. And so she sought him, but she couldn't find him because she was stopped by the watchman and beaten and bruised. So she asked the daughters of Jerusalem to help her find um, her beloved. And so even with all those consequences raining down, she persisted in finding her beloved because she just couldn't stop. That was the power of awakened love. And through all that messiness, then we entered into their love story because their love story is really much the same as our love story. Um, not, love's never really simple. It's never really controllable in different ways and to different degrees, we've all awakened love in our own lives, like the lovers have. 
and we live with the consequences. So their story is compelling because we can see our story in there somewhere as well. So as we left the lovers last week, they were separated. Uh, we probably had some hopes for her, maybe that she would find him and then all would be well. So at the start of this week, chapter 6, verse 1, it might seem a bit strange when the daughters of Jerusalem ask, where has your beloved gone? And she actually knows exactly where he is. He's gone down to the garden, to the bed of spices. And that's strange because throughout Song of Songs, the garden's been this symbol of the woman's sexuality. So when you read it, it sounds like she's saying, he's here with me. Or maybe I guess even if you take it as a physical garden, why did she need the help of the daughters of Jerusalem to find him if it sounds like she knew where he was the whole time? So there's lots of views about what's going on here. Um, and it's kind of hard to explain in any view that you take. It's all a bit tricky. At the end, I'll suggest what I think is going on. <clears throat> but for now, um, it's a bit of a mystery. But nevertheless, the lover is now with her. Um, oh, sorry, the beloved is now with her. And despite all the things pulling them apart, their awakened love is almost this irresistible force that's brought them together again. Verse 3, I am my beloved's and he is mine. So do they get their happy ending? Does love triumph overall? That's our big question as we go through this. From verse 4, the beloved speaks again. And as he does most of the time, he's just praising her beauty. Her eyes, even her teeth, her cheeks, they're all beautiful. There were 60 queens and 80 concubines, countless virgins, but there was only one in all of Israel that was as beautiful and as perfect as her. So it sounds like a lot of the other songs that the beloved's been singing to her. But what's fresh here is that it speaks with images of war. She's pictured as an army with banners, kind of majestic, but then frightening at the same time. Verse 5, he says, turn your eyes away from me because they overwhelm me. And that word overwhelm has the idea of like assailing someone, attacking someone. So someone attacking a city or a warrior or something like that. And then verse 10, strangely, she looks down on him, maybe in oppression or in victory after a battle. And again, she's called as awesome as an army with banners, majestic and frightening at the same time. So he, like her physical beauty, isn't kind of just playful and erotic like it has been throughout the rest of the Song of Songs, talking about spices and flowers, but now there's something darker as well. Just like war is terrible and dreadful, but at the same time it's glorious, maybe because it's terrible, because it's dreadful. So their awakened love is now not only beautiful and sensual, but it's harsh as well. There's edges to it. It's a bit dark. It has both sides like war does. The thing that pulls them together is the thing that drives them apart as well. So verse uh, 11 to 13, the beloved is still speaking here. He goes down to the, or the orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley. And because of that, he's suddenly set amongst chariots. And then these unnamed voices call for the Shulamite to return. Trying to understand that physically can be a bit confusing. 
was he just like wandering in the garden and then he got conscripted for war or did he get caught up in a war that was happening in the garden um like most of the book this is probably more poetic than literal the orchid the blossoms the vines are all words that have described their relationship and their bodies and so here as well i think it's the same he says he's enjoyed all the fruits of the lover every kind of physical pleasure she has to offer but verse 12 before he knew it his desire for her placed him amongst the chariots and there's been two mentions of chariots in song of songs the first was in chapter one where the beloved described the lover as a mare amongst pharaoh's chariots so she was like a mare that draws all the attention of the men and the second one was the chariot or carriage that Solomon rode in on from the wilderness, the one whose interior was inlaid with the love of young women. So it seems like chariots in Song of Songs have this symbol of sexual desire or sexuality, um, something like that, this kind of intense sexuality. And the reference to the prince could be translated as a willing man, so someone who's willing to offer himself and in this context, probably someone who's willing to offer himself sexually. So his awakened love with the lover has set him amidst an army of suitors, all vying for the love of the lover. And now suddenly he's their enemy. So their awakened love isn't just a war within themselves, between the two, but it's a war on the outside as well. He's fighting many other men. And so I think verse 13 is the voice of these lustful men. The exact meaning is a bit ambiguous, but it seems like they're calling out to the lover, saying return or turn, like turn around. Turn around, O Shulamite, so that we can look at your physical form, so that we can see your physical beauty. Don't hide it from us. And the beloved replies to them, why should you look upon her? Why should she turn around and why should she dance for you? That would be like dancing before two armies. He's saying this is war and we're two armies in battle and her dance is not for you. Her dance is for me. And so we again establish that the lover belongs to the beloved and the beloved belongs to the lover. So their, love, their awakened love, it tells us now, isn't just a war within and between themselves, but it's a war without, with the whole world. And then as surprisingly as we get the war imagery, it surprisingly disappears as well. And we return to like the playful language of fawns and wine. And the view here is almost optimistic. Like in the face of all these challenges and all these consequences and this war of love, maybe they can survive and even conquer it all. So from chapter 7, verse 1, one final time he praises her beauty. He describes every inch of her from the bottom to the top. So her feet, her thighs, her navel, her belly, her breasts, her neck, her eyes, her nose, and her hair. Every part he describes and every part is captivating. And he ends off by saying she's statuesque. She's tall and she's dignified like a palm tree. And his greatest desire in the world is to climb the palm tree and grasp hold of its fruit. 
and the lover in verse 10 replies, I'm yours and your desire is for me. Let's go into the villages. Let's go into the vineyards. Let's look at the blossoms. Let's eat every type of the finest fruit. She's saying, let's revel in our, in our love, in our sexual desire. Let's embrace all of it. We can overcome the obstacles and love will win. So it's kind of the storybook ending to their romance. Love triumphs over all and they live happily ever after. But it's only a fantasy. They speak their hopes to each other, but reality sets in in chapter 8. And the lover laments. Oh, if only you were a brother to me. If only you nursed at my mother's breast. Then I could kiss you and I wouldn't be despised. So it sounds a bit strange, but what it's saying, I think, is that in society's eyes, he's not worthy to be with her for some reason or another. I think, as I've suggested before, it's because he's a non-Israelite. So she wishes that he were part of his mother's household, that he were an Israelite. If only that were true, then she could take him right into her mother's house, into her family house, and there she would pour out all the joys of her body onto him. And one final time, she finds herself in his embrace again. I think more figuratively here than than literally. His hands are around her. And at that moment, she speaks a familiar warning. And actually, every time she's given this warning, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, don't stir up or or awaken love until it pleases. This warning's always been given while she's in the embrace of her beloved or her beloved is in her embrace. It's like when she recalls their most intimate moments, that's when she also remembers to warn the people listening against following in her footsteps. It doesn't quite come through in this translation, um, but this warning in particular has kind of like a rhetorical element to it, kind of like, why would you possibly stir up love? Why would you awaken love if it doesn't desire? So at the end of her story, her warning becomes almost a sigh of frustration. Why would you ever do this? After all this, why would, why would it be worth it? For the lover, all those beautiful words spoken to her by the beloved just now and all throughout the book kind of just ring empty in the end. In verse four, we end the lover's song with another sight coming up from the wilderness. If you remember the first one, it was Solomon's chariot coming up from the wilderness. It was alluring, but it was ominous. And so is this one. A lover leaning on her beloved. The two walking arm, arm in arm. It's actually kind of beautiful, right? Maybe we've all dreamt of it or we've all imagined it. But if we pay attention to the lover, it's something to be careful of as well. There's danger to it. It rises from the wilderness. And she speaks one last time of the lover she awakened with her, in, of the lover, of the love, sorry, she awakened with her beloved. A love that's now kind of unstoppable. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy as fierce as the grave. 
Waters can't quench it, floods can't drown it. This is reading into it a bit from the perspective of the story, I guess. Um, so it might or might not be accurate, but I think she's speaking now from the perspective of later in her life, maybe after her beloved has died, from a point where their romance and their dreams are utterly killed and impossible. And she knows now that love is stronger than death. And actually, I think this whole song has been told to the daughters of Jerusalem from later in her life. And that might be why she knew where the beloved was, even though she was telling the story of of seeking him. And so she says these things because awakened love has lingered on, even though the grave has now separated the two. Love is so great, she says, that if you were to offer everything that you had, every dollar that you had, every ounce of energy, every minute that you have on the earth, that offer would be despised because it's inadequate. And so in verse 8, the daughters of Jerusalem have listened closely to her tragedy and they ask, what about our little sister? What about the young women that have not yet grown to the point of awakening love? What do we do one day when she's betrothed to someone and on that day she might awaken her love? What do we do? And she has two situations, but the, the answer is the same in both. If she's a wall, if she's naturally resistant to awakening love, make her more resistant still, build a, build a battlement on her. But if she's a door, if she's naturally open to awakening love, make sure to seal her up. So that war imagery is back. Love is like a war. You have to defend your city. Whatever the situation is, don't let her awaken love until it's time. The surprise here is that our lover was a wall. She was naturally resistant to those things. But that wasn't enough. Because as soon as she was in the eyes of her beloved, her defenses melted. It was like she was no longer at war, but she was at peace. So she warns whether you're a wall or whether you're a door, be on your guard, build up your defences, don't awaken love until it's time. These last, these like last three or four verses, um, I think are her reflection on her life from the, from the kind of later years in her life and what she would do if she could do it again. She looks back at her encounter with Solomon and she sees him as an owner of many vineyards, which we've seen is a metaphor for someone's sexuality. So this is a reference, I think, to Solomon's harem, which uh, she became a part of. He owned many women and he lent them out for high prices. He sold their, the sexuality of these women, maybe for political gain or financial gain or for whatever reason. And hers was sold as well. But in hindsight, now she can see hers is precious. Hers is precious to her at the very least. Solomon might own the vineyards of many other people and other men might come in and pay a high price to taste their fruits, but hers is precious now. And she realizes that. 
In verse 13, we hear the call of the beloved to his lover one more time. She's in the garden with her companions. So maybe this is even thinking back to the the first call, the first time that they met. What would she do if she could do it all over again? Verse 13, the beloved calls. Verse 14, she says, make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So what's, what's her response? Make haste has this idea of running away, actually, of fleeing. Fleeing to the mountains like the beloved had to do in chapter 2. So it seems like she would turn him away if she had it to do over again. Maybe she's learned her lesson. But she doesn't send him to the rocky, craggy mountains that separated them like in chapter 2. Here she sends him to the mountain of spices, which has been a symbol of kind of sexual enjoyment throughout the book. So maybe she wouldn't change. Maybe after all this pain and all these consequences that have come upon her from from awakening love earlier, maybe she'd do it all over again, exactly the same. So it's not clear, even looking back on it. Maybe because awakened love is so powerful. Maybe she would do it all over again. Or maybe she would be wiser. And so the the book ends on this kind of ambiguous regret. Will she do it again? Would she not do it again? And so this, this song does an interesting thing to us when we listen to it the whole way through and see that it ends on this ambiguous note of regret. The song's been realistic about potential attraction and the pleasure of sexuality and physical intimacy. And it's actually been really graphic about it even. We've talked about breasts and dripping myrrh and all those sorts of things. But some of the really erotic imagery, the the double meanings and things I've left out and not even mentioned them at all. So Song of Songs has been really real about it or even hyper real in its depiction of sex and sexuality. But its message has been clear throughout as well. Don't awaken love until it desires. Awaken love in the right way at the right time. But think about the image of the the lover in the beloved's arms, walking up from the wilderness. I don't know what you thought of it, but I'm guessing you thought it was kind of sweet or kind of a thing that you would want for yourself. And I thought that as well. It's kind of like, I want to grow old and walk in the arms of my beloved. Now, I'd wish that for other people. But then it's like I didn't listen to a word of Song of Songs. This stuff, if Song of Songs says anything, Song of Songs says this stuff is dangerous. Yet, I still want the exact thing that I'm warned against. So despite the book's uh, warnings and even its tragic ending, we still kind of desire to walk arm in arm arm with our beloved, to be embraced by our beloved and to embrace them back. So it does all it can to turn you away from sexual desire and away from awakening love too early. But no matter what it says, we still desire it. The human drive for love And to express that sexually seems to just be there. It's just kind of how God made us. 
So then is the book futile? Has, has these four weeks been for nothing? Did God's word do nothing? I don't think so. I think it's just done something that we've not really expected. When Song of Songs meets human desire, I don't think it can, I don't think it intends to overcome our desire for love. It says love is as strong as death. And in some way, after reading Song of Songs, all it's done is make us want love more, hopefully in the right way, hopefully in the right time when it desires to be awakened. Love in the human being, it seems, can't be killed, nor would we want it to be killed because it's part of our humanity. I think what the book suggests is that we restrain it and unleash it at the right time because, and this is what the book ends with, love has this kind of eternality to it. Greed dies with the grave. Hunger for power dies with the grave. But love, it seems, goes on. And so the book makes us long for a love that can take us beyond the grave. Something that will, something that will actually fulfill and surpass this desire for love that we have. As God further reveals himself to us in Jesus, as we read the rest of the Bible, we find that there is a way that because of Jesus' death and because of his resurrection, lovers and love can go on forever. And not just love between us and God, but all of love, all the love that we experience in all of life, love between a husband and wife, love between a brother and sister, love between a mother and child. I don't know how these loves will be expressed in heaven, but I don't imagine that love would be diminished at all in heaven, but it would be made even more intense, more intense even than what Song of Songs describes. Because in the letter of 1 John, it tells us that God is love. It sounds nice and simple on the surface, God is love, but we've just read a book about love, and what we've seen is that love is messy and love is erotic and love is dangerous. So what does it mean that God is love if love is all these things? And I really don't have a clue, but we'll dive into it and try and figure it out a bit more next week. But regardless, it's something that we're drawn to and something that draws us to look beyond the grave. And it actually explains why love then is as strong as the grave. Its power isn't because of the intensity of our love, but the fact that God is love. And so love goes on past the grave because God is eternal. So the warnings of the lover might not diminish our desire for love. Maybe that's not what it was trying to do. Maybe it was trying to restrain our love, to unleash it at the right time, and unexpectedly to guide us to seek love all the more, to seek a love that's eternal and that can go on, and to find a way for lovers also to go on. Okay, let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for creating us the way that you have. Thank you for uh, building inside of us a desire for love um, that can't be quenched even by death. We pray that you will help us to uh, express this love in the right way and to find 
a way to express that love eternally. And we thank you for making that path available to us through Jesus. And we thank you for making that path clear in the Bible. And we pray that you'll give us wisdom to walk along that path. Amen. And now it is time for the Q&A. Question is, so did the beloved die before the end of chapter 8? Yeah, so um, I guess like Song of Songs is like in general very hard to interpret. There's lots of different views. Um, but the view that I've gone with um, is that, yeah, the, the beloved dies, um, I think, probably... Uh, so okay so my view is that that this is the lover telling the story from like kind of later in her life so the beloved is dead by the time she's telling the story which is why i feel like there's some mismatching things where it's like oh you know she's lost the beloved she's telling that story and then the daughters of jerusalem ask her where is he and then she she tells them where he is sort of thing um so i think the the beloved probably dies i think like uh, after she gets beaten and bruised I think he dies somewhere around there. Yeah. That, that's just, that's my guess. There's like no particular thing that makes me think that. That's just kind of like a perspective from the story. Right. Uh, and there's tons of, there's very different ways to view Song of Songs. So um, I've gone down one particular view that says there's two lovers or two beloveds, like Solomon and the beloved. Um, and then other people think that it's just one. And some people think that one person is Solomon. Some people think that one person isn't. Mm. Um, and then there's like variations of all of that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's my particular view on it. Yep. Okay. All right. If you have any follow up question, feel free to put them down. Uh, we've got another question just popped in. Yep. Uh, what is Shulamite? Shul- if I yep. pronounce that correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It kind of pops out of nowhere. Where was it? It was in ver- chapter chapter six, uh, verse thirteen. Yeah, so it kind of comes out of nowhere, and it's a bit unclear. It's actually pretty unclear what it is as well. So there's, there's, I guess, maybe four options to what it could be. Uh, I kind of skimmed over it because I think in the end it doesn't necessarily affect the interpretation. But the four options are, one, uh, a Shulamite is a person from Shulam, um, except there's nowhere called Shulam that we know of. Uh, so maybe it's a person from Shunam which is in the Bible somewhere, I think in 1 Kings. So that's possible. So it's like the name of where she came from. Um, second option is, um, so Hebrew kind of works on uh, root words. Uh, and then like those words are kind of changed and you have kind of different meanings of the words that come off it. So Solomon and Shulamite said, share the same root word. So it's possible that, Shulamite is kind of like the female Solomon. So it's just the female version of Solomon, like kind of. And then if you kind of read that into, into this perspective, you might be saying that she's a bit promiscuous. They're calling her, you know, like Solomon sleeps with many women. They're, they're saying to her, you know, hey, like we, we all like you sort of thing. Um, so they're, they're calling her a bit promiscuous there. Um, and then actually the third option kind of comes off that. So Shulamite and Solomon share the same root word but so does the word for peace and the word for Jerusalem. They all have the same root word. Um, so then in that, um, in that kind of understanding, maybe the Shulamite is the woman of peace. So she's throughout her life searching for peace 
and at the end it says i found peace in the eyes of my beloved so that's a, that's a third option it could be and the fourth option um is that um shulamite is like a play on the the name of a mesopotamian goddess uh which is like sul Mitu or something like that and that goddess is the goddess of love and war and we were talking about love and war today as well so it's kind of saying that yeah like she she embodies love but in doing that she embodies war as well so like all four options could kind of work so i just like i just skipped over it i didn't say anything in the sermon uh but it's uh it's an interesting question no one knows it's the only usage of the word in the bible so no one knows what it is for sure uh but those are four pretty possible options okay